Work, workforce, and workplace norms are shaped as much by popularized portrayals as they are by our lived experiences. From sensational headlines, like The Great Resignation, to successful series, like The Office and Silicon Valley, to skits and stories shared on our social media feeds, what we see shapes what we believe. Let's go behind the scenes to discover what's new now and next in the world of work, and we'll challenge the traditions of what it means to live well and to work well. This is Success From Anywhere. Today on Success From Anywhere, we'll meet a former farmhand turned forthright futurist whose experiences growing kidney beans cultivated the curiosity to discover what's rooted in every successful office, organization, colleague, and community. Amounting to a hill of beans, it turns out, starts and ends with planting and nurturing one single seed, according to my next guest. Please welcome to the show, David Horsager, CEO of Trust Edge Leadership Institute. Welcome to the show, David. Karen, it is great to be here. Great to see you and great to be on with you. Because we are talking about the world of work, I like to ask each guest, what was your first paying job and how did that job inform or inspire your career trajectory? Bailing hay. So in hay baling, you're, you're, you're uh, standing on a wagon. There's a tractor that's pulling a baler that's pulling a hay wagon. You're on that hay wagon. While it's bumping across the field, you're taking these 50 to 70 pound bales and stacking them just right, hoping you don't tip the whole rack uh, of, or hay wagon, as people would say. So I think that did two things for me. One, it taught me how to work and be happy to work and willing to work and actually love a part of work, those kind of jobs growing up on the farm. I think it also taught me I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what comes to mind, you have two children. Do you take them on hay rides or does that you give you an allergic have, reaction at this right. point? Well, I have four kids. So, oh, four. Um, the, yeah, so, uh, so we have, funny enough, as much as I tease, we have a hobby farm now. We have a couple of horses and 20 chickens and have fresh eggs every day and a pretty cool spot and our own uh, John Deere tractor. And so teaching them how to work as well. But, you know, as a hobby farm, that it's a losing proposition as far as money, but at least hopefully we're making good kids in the world. And um, so we're, we're having a great time learning, weeding. We have a big garden, fresh, fresh, fresh produce and, uh, and some other things. So, um, yep. They're, they're all, we're all together on it. Work together, they're, play together, you know. That reminds me of the childhood book, the, I think it's called The Little Red Hen, right? Kind of the lesson being, if you don't work, you don't eat, right? Isn't she cultivating wheat and then she has to cut it down and she makes the bread and nobody wants to participate until the bread comes out of the oven. They're, you know, sensing and smelling the bread and they want the warm butter. Exactly. Yep. So... Hopefully we learn to work and appreciate it. Fruits of labor. There's, you know, you talk about work and there's a lot of fruit of labor. So, you know, as, as, as we'll talk about, I think in this workforce, there's a lot about how we can, you know, how it's changed. But I think something that's true is people that are working uh, towards something and really quite work hard actually are often better off mentally, psychologically, physically, and a host of other things so um, there's a lot of good to work. 
The pandemic pause did introduce this phenomenon simultaneously of people examining their relationship with work and how it shows up in their lives. And when I read these headlines, like the great resignation or reshuffle or whatever you want to call it and read these strong reactions to going back to the office or not, it makes me think that it all comes down to your one word focus that you talk about and then made into a career and a living beyond bailing hay. Well, that word is, of course, trust. And, uh, you know, we research on trust. We inspire and speak 100 times a year around the world on trust. We certify people on driving trust into their organizations deeper. We measure trust in organizations. And we have six different assessment tools from an enterprise trust index to an individual assessment on trust. But we think, you know, if you're not measuring trust, if you're not teaching trust, if you're not uh, giving a common language for building trust, then you're not really doing the right thing. And I think trust affects everything more than anything else, I believe. Lack of trust is the biggest cost in an organization. I believe it's never a leadership issue. The reason you follow a leader not is trust, not a sales issue. The reason people buy or not has something to do with trust. Not the way to amplify a marketing message is increase trust in the message. The way to increase learning in the classroom is increase trust in the teacher or the psychological safety or trust of the room. So we have to deal with this trust issue. And when we do, you know, that's why I wrote the newest book is because people were not dealing with the root issue. And that is when we deal with trust, we deal with what we meant that affects attrition, retention, you know, productivity. When we just say, well, it's leadership or it's engagement. What do we know? You don't get engagement with engagement. You have to increase trust. What do we know? Net promoter score. You don't get referrals with referrals. You have to increase trust. Then you get more referrals. So when people deal with this, they start to see what they actually hoped for. You use that phrase, common language. And sometimes we might have the same intention and we use a single powerful word like trust in a very different context. If you were to give all of our listeners a common language or definition of trust, what would it be? Well, there's a common language on the definition we have as trust, and then there's a common language on the eight pillar framework or how we build it. So on that definition of trust, you are absolutely right, by the way, because I will actually, even in a keynote, brainstorm with people, what, what are words that stand for trust? Oh, safety. Yep, that's a good word for trust. And always, oh, dependability, reliability, consistency. Absolutely, consistency. Whatever you're consistent, you know, the, uh, uh, if you're late all the time, I will trust you to be late, right, consistently. <laughs> so, so um, and there's people that say things that are, I think there's a lot today about trust and um, a lot of people with and mostly without research. So there's someone today that says trust, that's just transparency. And while transparency can build trust, it's not true because, you know, some of your kids are so transparent on social media, I don't trust them for a second because uh, it's not just transparency, it could be confidentiality. So um, both can build trust. So the way we defined it at the Institute and even back to my grad work a long time ago is trust is a confident belief in a person, product, or an organization. When I can confidently believe in you, and of course we have even more to the definition of what we mean by gaining the trust edge or being a trusted leader and you know, a confident belief to do what's right, to deliver on what's promised and a host of other things. But really, it's a confident belief, like an anticipation that you will do this. That's a faith in you, a, a, a confident belief. Often organizations make headlines now for outrageous spyware examples, right? I recently read about an organization installing cameras in the homes of their customer service workers to watch them and make sure they were working. And when I work with organizations about return to office or not, or how much hybrid work, it strikes me 
we're trying to solve a trust issue. I mean, what advice would you give to leaders, I mean, employers and employees who are listening, and this is the battleground where they're experiencing trust as the top issue or battleground in their office or workplace? Two things about that. Number one, I think people need to see a lack of trust is the biggest cost they have. So think about that. They don't trust their employees, so now they're paying for spyware. They're paying for all these things, right? If I, if I don't trust, I, I say often, you know, the cost of a lack of trust, it, like a lock. What's the, I don't trust you, so I put a lock on something. Uh, the paradox, of course, is a lock can, in, a, in an untrustworthy environment, increase trust. But if I didn't have to, if I could trust you, there's two big costs. One, the, the money. i got to buy the lock. Two, time. Now i got to open it every time I go through the gate. What if it's a combination lock? Oh, my goodness, forever, right? But, or you think of someone you trust. Even think of, before you get to employees, think of, think of a, a workforce. Think of a, you know, a teenager, if you're a parent, that you trust. Friday nights, oh, no stress. Oh, I got it. What if a teenager I don't trust? Oh, it's just, oh, keep me up at night. And that's the same in this relationship employer to employee, employee to employer is there's a lot of stress where there isn't trust either way. There's a lot of costs either way. So first, we want to create a trust, high trust environment and we want to hire high trust people and all that kind of stuff. Um, as far as that example of, I mean, the first thing people need to see is that a lack of trust is the biggest cost we have. This does not mean I believe we should trust everyone. And so what we've learned is actually more, there's, there's more nuance because actually while an employee might say, I don't perform well when I've got spyware and all this, which is generally true, an employer can also say there has been truth to people saying they're working one job and working two jobs and actually, you know, doing their laundry when they shouldn't be or whatever at home. So there is, it is a real genuine challenge. So for us to just say, well, don't do, this. Oh, are you kidding me? You're putting a chip in people. That's crazy. Or, oh, are, are, but are you kidding me? There's people that actually are um, abusing their, in essence, freedom of not having accountability. So the two big things, there's a framework for building trust, but I will say two things that leaders, employers need to think about, especially from what we found is, a mix in, in an at-home or a virtual work environment, a mix between three things really, clarity, clearly what I want, clearly what we need here, connection, so we stay human, like we're actually connecting, predictable connection with our people like every week or every time we're going to predictable connection, and accountability. We have to have accountability, a, a, a fair type of accountability in any environment, but also in a, in, an, uh, in a virtual environment. So those little ideas come under the eight pillar framework, but those are three that have three little parts of the framework that have kind of risen to the top because you have the leaders saying, well, I need accountability and there's truth to that. And you have employees saying, well, I need connection. I don't even know you anymore. Who are you? What, what, where's the human piece? So we have to think about both of those, you know, together as we move into this new world, new economy in many ways. When I interviewed you for the Success From Anywhere book, you introduced me to your eight pillars of trust. Could you take our listeners through those? You referenced a couple in your list. Talk to us about these eight pillars. I mean, how did you discover them? And I'm guessing you pressure tested them to make sure they hold true, as true pre-pandemic as they are, I guess we can't call it post-pandemic, but whatever world we're in now, what are the eight pillars of trust and how did you arrive at them? So the, the, 
this was the second half of my grad work is how is trust built and it's these eight pillars the first half was proving a lack of trust is the biggest cost in an organization so these eight pillars are how trust is built by the way uh, i'll get to how we pressure tested them and so forth but i believe i absolutely passionately with research with uh, work across six continents with a work across industries believe these are how trust is built falls under these eight uh absolutely so so they start with C's, so please don't think of them as some um, alliteration list from some motivation or something. They're, they each represent a really important research funnel, but for clarity, they start with C's. Here they are. Number one is clarity. People trust the clear, and they mistrust or distrust the ambiguous or the overly complex. Whenever we overcomplexify beyond what is needed, we lose clarity, which loses trust. So clarity, we trust the clear. Clear, and just to give context quickly is, this works for everybody. So a leader might not be trusted because they're not clear about the vision. A manager might not be trusted because they're not clear about expectations. A salesperson might not be, you know, people are not buying. Even though they're clear about how cool they are and how long they've been in business, they're not clear about the benefits of that product to me. Or the teacher's not, you know, people aren't clear. They're not clear about the assignments. So the kids go home frustrated. So it's, it, you know, it kind of affects everything. So number one, I'll go through faster now. Number one is clarity. Number two is compassion. We trust those that care beyond themselves. And we have a hard time being accountable to someone or following someone if they don't have compassion or care, even if it's not about me. Something beyond themselves, missional or so forth. Number three is character. We trust those that do what's right over what's easy. There's integrity involved there and a host of other things, but we trust character. And yet that's not everything because we also have number four, competency. I might trust Karen, because, you know, to take my kids to the ball game because of her character and not trust her to give me a root canal because of confident competency as far as I know, right? So competency. The next pillar is commitment. We trust those that are willing to stay committed when it gets tough, you know, commit in the midst of adversity. And if you think of people in life or history that have left a legacy, parent maybe, a teacher, Mandela, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Jesus, or Joan of Arc, they might have been trusted because they were committed to something beyond themselves, maybe to death, so their followers might have uh, trusted them, partly because of commitment. Uh, the next pillar is connection, the ability, the willingness to connect and collaborate with others. We tend to trust that with, you know, if I see counterforces of trust, like siloing in a company or unwillingness to share for the betterment of all, we have a counterforce to this pillar of connection, the willingness to connect and collaborate. We, we tend to trust that willingness. The next pillar is contribution. What I mean there is contrib um, someone that contributes results. In fact, the number one word out of this research funnel would have been results, outcomes, performance. You can have compassion, you can have character, but if, that, if you don't contribute the results I expected or asked for, I'm not gonna trust you. Finally, consistency, we trust sameness. The only way to build a reputation, the only way to build a brand is consistency of experience. Sameness is, is uh, why you, you might not trust someone, but if they're the same all the time, you'll trust them to do that, like be late all the time, you're trusting them. <laughs> to be late all the time, right? <laughs> so uh, that's the eight pillars. And of course, I can speak about tools and uh, nuances about each of these, each of them for a full day. So that's a quick overview of the eight. But I think everything, empathy, every, everything comes back to these eight somewhere and how they build trust in brands or global governments. Even great leaders with pure intentions sometimes lack consistency or fall short in one or more of these areas. And how do you rebuild trust 
when you know trust is either fragile or has been broken or undermined in some kind of significant way. And that could be trust in a brand or an organization sure. as well. So first of all, let me say we all fall short. I mean, I'm, I'm in, I teach on these and, and I'm imperfect at them. I wish I would have, you know, responded differently to one of my teenage daughters, you know, this week. Like, I, we can know something and it's, and it's difficult to, you know, so I'm imperfect at everything I teach. And yet it's still true, I believe. As far as how we rebuild trust, I'll give one takeaway on this, uh, in this time together. We do have a 10-step process if you're a big company with an oil spill, let's say, or, you know, a board of directors. But whether you're a big company or you're an individual, it actually comes down to one thing, and it is not the apology. In fact, we never rebuild trust on the apology. That does not mean I don't believe we should apologize and a, an apology would kind of open the door of communication, but it is not the apology that we ever rebuild trust on. We've all had this happen where someone says, I'm sorry I'm late, and in fact, they're late all the time. They didn't rebuild trust on the apology. The only way to rebuild trust, it turns out, is under the commitment pillar, and that is by making and keeping a new commitment or promise. And that's the only way trust is ever rebuilt. So when you're thinking as an organization, you have to make and keep a new promise or commitment before you'll ever be you know, retrusted. That's individually, organizationally. And of course, there are more steps uh, you know, that we can think about, but that's a key. Hybrid work. Employees want it, employers need it, and everyone has questions. When done right, facilitating flexible work can be a win-win for everyone. Happier employees, engaged teams, and better business outcomes. Robin is here to make the logistics easy. Our all-in-one workplace experience platform helps thousands of companies reimagine their approach to work. To learn more about how we make hybrid work work, visit robinpowered.com. You talked about communication and clarity as two of the eight pillars. And oftentimes I hear leaders share how challenging it is to communicate and have clarity amidst this time of a lot of uncertainty and also when people are distributed. You know, the ways that we're needing to communicate and have this clarity are changing. What are some practical steps people can take around communication and clarity when circumstances are shifting rapidly, new information is coming in, and we may not always have the luxury of being in person to have the full nonverbal cues of the people we're communicating and trying to get this clarity with. There's a lot we could talk about here because there are so many things we can do as leaders. One, I would over-communicate the why. Over-communicate the why for change. We don't usually lose trust because of change. We lose trust because we didn't over-communicate the why for the pivot. Um, for the change that we, that we saw. Clarity is challenging. It's challenging for me. By the way, I do say this also. In fact, you, at the core, no one ever has a communication issue. At the core, it is always one of these pillows. It's a clarity. A, so what they mean is, because communication is happening all the time. Clear communication, clarity, like we said, is trusted. Unclear communication is not. High character communication is trusted. Low character isn't. Consistent is trusted. Inconsistent isn't. Competent communication is trusted. Incompetent isn't. So when we go down the pillars, first of all, under communication, we actually solve the issue we meant. Like, is that, was it clear? Was it competent? Was it compassionate toward them? Was it, and so forth. So if we want to solve that, let's say, communication issue, it's actually one of these that we want to use. But um, there are several things. So over-communicating the why is 
gives clarity because they want to know why change, you know, why for the change. Another couple ideas here is um, shortening the time frame. So, like, as an example, um, I was, got to be on a call with uh, General McChrystal. He took over the joint forces in one of the toughest times in the Afghan war. And, um, and he said, you know, gone are the days of one-year strategic plans or, you know, we pull them back to 90 days or whatever. And, and there can still be a place for one year or five years, but, but basically pulling back time frames. So he had mentioned uh, uh, to those of us on the call, like, pull it back, like, when in the midst of change, which, by the way, is going to happen again and very fast. I don't know if it'll be a pandemic or blockchain or what it will be in everybody's world, but there is going to be massive change. And he said, remember when it was, basically, this was right when it was so crazy, and we didn't know. We didn't know what's next. And so we, he said, plant a flag for this week. What's the priority for this week? Okay, next week. What's the priority for this week? What's the priority for today? And interestingly, when... Um, he, he had mentioned when they were looking for Osama bin Laden, and he, he basically said ab about this. He said, you know, we were having these weekly meetings. We couldn't find the intel to figure this out. And he said something like, basically, I pulled back the time frame, and I said, I'm going to have a call every day. I think he said 0600 at his time, if he's in D.C. or Europe. And he said, we're going to meet for 30 minutes with 2,200 intelligence professionals from North Africa, Europe, Asia, you know, and DC on the call. Anybody that has new intel that day, bring it. So they took the intel, 30 minutes. Then for 15 minutes, they made a plan for that day. Within a few months, they found Osama bin Laden. So it's, it's, it, we have to, as far as clarity, we have to bring back the time frame so that we can be clear because we cannot be clear. In, you know, on March 15th of 2020, we could not be clear about next year. We couldn't. So that's one idea. Another maybe little idea for people that just are managing people. ODC, I call it. Not OCD, ODC. So if you want something, I learned this the hard way. When I took over my first organization, I was younger than almost all my staff. I had a lot of things against me. I wasn't getting what I wanted. And I started to think, oh, I see. It's my fault. I'm the one not being clear. And so I, I just started thinking through this ODC. O is outcome. Not clear about all this way of doing it, especially if you have mature people, but what's the outcome you want? This matters in the new workplace, especially in the virtual workplace, because we're really building this on outcomes, not trying to, not on work, not on just doing things, right? So people can be absolutely clear about the O, outcome. The D is deadline. What's the deadline? Maybe it's a final deadline, or maybe we don't know the final deadline. Maybe it's just the deadline for looking at this part of it or what we know next. So, uh, but if we can give a clear deadline of, Instead of, I want to see that soon or next week, I want to see that 10 o'clock on Friday. Because many managers are, 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 are um, they don't give a deadline because they're worried it will create conflict. When you and I know not giving a deadline will ensure you get conflict. So outcome, deadline, and the C is clarifiers. Leave space for, are you clear? Am I clear? Are we clear about this together? And there's space for some clarifying questions. That little idea actually can help a manager, especially in this new environment. And expectations continue to shift. When I think about what happened during that initial lockdown, you know, how many managers for the first time were seeing their employees' homes or home offices, children, pets, and making a part of their practice checking in on the well-being 
of that employee. And I remember during that time, you and I talked about for the first time, the Edelman Trust Index that comes out each year reflected that during the pandemic, for the first time, the most trusted entity became the office, your organization where you work over all other institutions. What do you make of that shift? How much of that shift in expectations do you think employees will continue to have of employers? Well, and that's so true. And specifically, what we're seeing is my is trusted compared to all. So my corporations, maybe not, but my corporation, not all CEOs, but my CEO. Now, so this is why there's been a move back to like nationalism and minus, right? So it's, there is a shift in, in people toward me, um, my CEO, my manager, my, my, my. And uh, I think that's partly because people have gotten, you know, there's a ramp up of closeness almost in a way be, that this made not, not there, of course, there's a separation because of virtual, but there's a like really of this is the person, you know, maybe I used to get to talk to all kinds of people and now I only get to talk to this person like each week or month or whatever it is. So there's, there's a move that way. Um, I think it's, you know, going to be more critical than ever that we as corporations lead the way. It, it is true, or companies, it is also true that institutional trust keeps tanking. Other institutions, so media, um, government, all these things, we're seeing religion even, places of worship, food. You talked about bean farm I grew up on, you know, semi-loads of dark red kidney beans. Now, you know, the restaurant or the person that's eating the food wants to know it was grown outside the door of the restaurant and, you know, was listening to music and picked with a white glove. You know, it's, it's like the institution of farming is not as trusted as that gardener right next door. So we need to, you know, we can think about that, but people are trusting their person, their manager. And if they're not, they're leaving. You st it still is true. Gallup and our study and others are finding still number one reason people leave an organization is their direct leader. Um, so, You referenced your study. I was fortunate to be a part of your annual conference around trust. And I was struck that there were leaders and people from every kind of organization, big companies, healthcare, public service. And you released your study, this 2022 Trust Outlook study, I keep this on my desk and reference it daily. And one of the topics that comes up consistently in conversations is culture. And you built a whole section about trust and organizational culture. So first, tell us where we can find this report because I think it's publicly available. Yes. But then let's talk about how do we build organizational cultures of trust? Well, there you can go to trustoutlook.com or trustedge.com and you can get there the trust outlook we pay for all of it ourselves we do not take sponsors so that it is a high trust study and is not skewed in any way by anybody so it's and we give it away so trustoutlook.com would be the specific study trustedge.com is the overall organization you can find it there lots to you know lots of in you know, in this <laughs> about organizations, so I'll let you jump into the next question. Well, we were talking a little bit about culture. I mean, who owns the culture of trust? Is it the employer or the employee? Turns out it's 50 some 50. combination. Yeah, basically it's 50-50. It? That was the finding. And we wondered what people would expect, what they wanted, what they thought, and that was 
an interesting finding that basically globally even people, you know, it, it, it's owned by both and people understand that. And I, I use this page probably most of all about building trust in virtual work environments. And it stands out to me, increased autonomy, you know, is one of the responses and how much you have to have trust in order to offer people more autonomy. You have to, and that's why it's so important to create a way for trust to be built. So certainly hiring, measuring trust and being able to hire, um, hiring high trust people or trustworthy people is, you know, makes it a lot easier, right? And it turns out you can, you can measure trust in certain ways, so that, that matters. But of course, um, when trust is there, it just makes things, everything from stress to a host of other things just be way more efficient. When you are an organization or an individual and you've identified a trust gap, so let's say you've really gotten into the root cause, you have the commitment to work on it. How do you get from that intention to impact? You know, when you get into a plan, how does this get down to practical? It strikes me you work with organizations and individuals on asking one question, right? Because you can know the challenge, you can have a commit to change. Yeah. But at some point, don't you have to have a plan? Well, yeah, of course you have to have a plan, right? So, um, here's the, we, we get hopeful when it's something we can do, right? That, that gives me hope. Like, oh, I can do that. So a question that we ask over and over and over, if we're going to do this, we see this gap, but we ask the question, how, how are you going to do that? Okay. Then how are you going to do that? Okay. Then how are you going to do that? Until they can do something starting today or tomorrow. And it seems simple, but it's not. You have to ask how, you know, when I was, um, you know, losing, I lost 52 pounds in five and a half months in 2011, and I basically kept it off. But what I kept hearing was, um, uh, all, all you have to do is eat less, exercise more. And that's not clear enough for me. It wasn't clear enough. So finally, I asked how until it came to something I could do today or tomorrow. And then I asked how again until I could do it. And by the way, we have to get to things we can do or willing to do. So you can't say, if someone told me I can never have ice cream again, not happening. So I have to get to how I will do. And that's the same with this work or these gaps, you know. Okay, I see this. Okay, how can I close that gap? How, 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 how? And, into, and asking how until I will do something starting today or tomorrow, today or tomorrow, if, that's, if it's w one person. Now, when we do how plans on teams and individuals, but on teams, we are really clear that a how, a final how, always has a who, when, and where. So the who is me if it's me, right? But, but, but um, like, if, I, if I'm going to work out tomorrow and I don't know when specifically, Chances are I won't do it. If I don't know where, choices don't win. So if I'm either, you can either, I'm either going to go to the gym or I'm going to run, take a run. If I have a choice at 5.30 in the morning, neither happen. So, and it's the same with people, by the way. We've been lied to. Co-leadership is terrible generally. The data shows if you have more than one person on a final task, you have 50% less chance of it getting done. Collaborative leadership is excellent. Collaborate, collaborate, connect, connect, connect. But in teams, instead of saying, you know, Susie and Bill do this, give one a chance to be the leader and owner if you want it to get done. Ownership is trust. Ownership is trust. And everybody listening will want to know, what was your how that you got down to that helped you lose 52 pounds in five and a half Right, months? there are several, okay. But one of them was not drinking a calorie. And a specifically, I started with, you know, I grew up in the poorest county in Minnesota. One thing we did not get to have, or one of the poorest counties, one of the poorest two, 
I, we, one thing we didn't get to have was soda. In Minnesota, we call it pop because we can spell that. So, you know, we didn't get to have a Coke. The rich kids got to have a Coke. We didn't get to have a can of pop. That was amazing, right? We saw that, but we didn't get to have it. So when I started flying more 25 years ago, and the flight attendant said I could have my very own can, I had four Cokes by L.A., you know? So, so I started drinking more and more. And so um, my first final how, it was me. I'm the final how. That's a person. The place was anytime I'm on a plane. And it was, I'm not going to drink a calorie. So when they offer me a, a drink, which I would go back to childhood, like, oh, I could never have this. I'll have a, co-, you know, I'll have all these. Co-. I, I was automatic and I still am automatic. I have hardly ever drink a calorie now, 10 years later. But the, the, the drink like that was, was a big deal to me, not drinking a calorie. Um, so I, I ordered something else uh, on the plane. Uh, in, in the morning, I thought juice was good for you. Of course, Doc said, if you want to get sick, drink orange juice. It's full of sugar. Drink, you know, eat an orange, drink a glass of water. So my final how, first of all, was I'm not going to drink a calorie on a plane. Then it was I'm not going to drink a calorie for 90 days. Then it was I'm not going to drink a calorie for six months. And I seldom drink a calorie today. Now I will drink a calorie once in a while, but I'm very aware. And that works for me. That's not for everybody, by the way. This is not healthcare advice. This is not fitness advice. This isn't for most people. Most of my friends would never want to do this. You have to get to something you will do right? And you can do. And for me, that was um, something I could do. And back to what you said earlier, what's the biggest commitment you will make and keep to yourself? Mm -hmm. And how are you going to do it? Yep. Well, changing channels a bit. When we talk about the office, no office conversation would be complete without a little water cooler chat. You know, everyone says they miss this, right? The spontaneous gathering. So I like to do a segment on the show of the virtual water cooler, just a take five. So five quick, easy, fun questions. You just say the top thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the nature of spontaneity. Exactly. I, I would ask if you, all right. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? A cowboy. Oh, that's a great answer. <laughs> now, I know we just talked about your 52-pound weight loss. And what is your favorite guilty pleasure ice cream. office snack? And particularly, I'm an ice cream connoisseur. I mean, I can eat, I, I know that what kinds are good, what kinds aren't, what are made of the highest fat, which you want, high-fat milk or cream or not, and so forth. But I'll tell you the best kind. The best is homemade with a very specific recipe recipe that I grew up with. Homemade ice cream, put together, believe it or not, raw egg. The bucket with the milk, crank? Crank, yep. It's got the rocks Nothing on like it. on the side. Nothing like it. I've yep. done that too. It's the yes. best. It's the best. Now, you hear a lot, you know, in organizations about trust. You gave the meeting example. What is the most creative excuse you've ever heard for someone completely missing a meeting? Oh, my most creative excuse i don't know if i can think of a good one here um i don't we did have someone on the show that said she got contacted by one of her employees who was in labor like her water broke and she had the presence of mind to contact her and say i'm i'm gonna miss the meeting and i thought wow i mean it it's not just it's kind of creative, but I mean, how did she have the presence of mind in that oh, moment? Oh my, I don't have a good one that pops to mind on that. That's okay. What do you keep on your desk that inspires you? Well, I have right now, as an example, I have this, write a note of appreciation. 
to just keep oh. that front and center, both being grateful for the people around me and grateful in, in, um, in every way. So that's on my desk. I'll look at around here. Um, that's a key. I also have, uh, you know, this back when the kids were cute. Um, you know, now they're teenagers, so no, they're still cute, but, and my wife also, and so if I turn around and showed you a couple pieces of art in the office, and I guess I kind of can, we can be just flexible, but there's some of the kids and some art that's uh, inspiring if anybody's watching um, that way. Books also, of course, I love books, and you can see yours right up there, one of them, one of yours. <laughs> and you're a chapter in yeah. it, so everyone can check it out and learn more about building trust. and. Your note about write a note of appreciation is a great transition to the last question in our water cooler segment. To whom are you most grateful for investing in your career? Well, you know, there's two people come to mind, and I think a lot of people say might say both of these, but one is, you know, I told the story, I think you might have heard it on the on the platform this year, but my dad was a magnificent leader. Uh, he's he'll be 93 in a couple months. He still runs the big farm up in northern Minnesota, mom and dad. But they were so influential in my life. When people talk to me about where this trust stuff come from. Many would say, oh, of course it was the research. Okay, it was working in this company. Okay, it was the book. Okay, it was the grad work. Okay, it was the this, that. And I really think probably it started growing up on that farm under great leadership. So that's one thing. The other is, um, you know, my wife has supported me in this work in so many ways around the world. And uh, it, it's just a, a gift for sure and a high trust relationship. I, recommending, I recommend uh, marrying right if you're going to do that kind of thing. Um, it tends to, to have a big impact on your life. And so that's huge. I'll, I'll give one tip here, tidbit. And that is, you know, when I started speaking more 25 years ago, I might be backstage. Uh, this is before we had any kids and I was scared to death to go on. You know, I was scared that my knees are shaking and I'm scared. I might be sick to my stomach. And she would look at me. <laughs> And she put her hands on my shoulders and she would just say, David, just love them. They can tell when you love them. Stop thinking about the research. Stop thinking about this. Just love them. And that's been a phrase. She'll text me. She'll call. One time I met, went up to, you know, speak to a whole country and meet the president of the country. And there's machine guns all around. And she was with me on that trip over to East Africa. And she just squeezes my hand. She knows I'm stressed. <laughs> she just squeezes my hand. Just love them. They can tell when you love them. And I, when I get in that mind in any of my work, in any of my speaking, in any of our consulting, and we have the phrase all around the office here, and even the event, the Trusted Leader Summit that you came to, we, every morning we talk to our team, like, remember, just love them. They can tell when you love them. And it's a big part of hopefully who we are um, and what we do and how we try to serve people, whether it's you know, for work toward an outcome of lower attrition or higher retention or increased sales or, or corruption issue, you know, uh, stopping corruption issues or something. It's all about, for us, it's building trust to love them well. Well said, and thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and bringing trust into the workplace and into the workforce. It's the topic of our time. One last question before we close. For everyone listening, what is one step that each person could take as soon as they finish listening to this podcast toward building more trust inside of their team or organization? Boy, that's a big question to say one. You're, you, you, you know what? You're going to get what you're paying you for. You can pick a couple. Number one, write down the eight-pillar framework, put it by your desk, print it off the site, whatever, and think, what is the real issue? Because it's one of those. It's not leadership. It's not communication. It's not engagement. It's one of those, the eight pillars. Yep. Oh, it's a clarity issue. Oh, then you're solving the right issue if you can get to those eight. That's one. 
Number two, under those, you could say, what's, what one do I have the biggest opportunity with? Take that one and how, how, how it until you could do something today or tomorrow. And the third question <laughs> in one here would be, um, I would ask, what can I do consistently? Like, am I going to do that consistently? Because a lot of people say, oh, flavor of the month. Oh, I'll do that thing now. But will I write that? Do, you know, what can I do consistently? Because then do that. Do the thing you'll do consistently. We know it's the little things done consistently that make the biggest difference. So if I am going to pick something to do, in, or I have a choice among things, which thing could I or would I do consistently? That's fantastic. Thank you, David Horsager, CEO of Trust Edge Leadership Institute, for sharing strategies to restore and retain trust from the boardroom to the living room today on Success From Anywhere. Because success is not a destination, success is not a location, success is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Thanks for joining us today.